I think we are um, reducing, massively reducing the amount of land necessary to grow that food. So like one, one two hundredth or one three hundred fiftieth of the land, right? We're, we're talking about a fraction of a percent necessary to grow. We're talking about, you know, the end point, once we really refine the technology is less than 1% of the water of the field. And you kind of like zoom back from that. And you're like, you know, we're freeing up now the resources to give things back. You know, my fantasy is to say, you know, 60, 70 years from now, we can do this so inexpensively that the family farm is now a, a building, right? And instead of being, you know, 400, 500, 600, 10,000 acres, however many acres it is to like grow these crops, we're now doing this in the super condensed space and all that acreage goes back to nature. Welcome back to Who's Saving the Planet, the show where every week we speak to somebody who is building a more sustainable future. We're going back to well-trod ground this week, uh, no pun intended. Um, we are speaking with somebody who is at the forefront of the next generation of what our agriculture will look like. So how are we going to grow food? How are we going to create a supply chain that would work with a growing population and limited resources? On the podcast this week is Nate Story, the co-founder and CSO, which is the chief science officer of Plenty. Plenty is one of the biggest startups you may never have heard of. They have raised over a half a billion dollar in funding to create a system of vertical agriculture that can help to feed the world's population. So I'm incredibly excited about this podcast or this episode, because not only do we talk about the technology that they are developing and have developed to make this possible and the way that they're scaling it up, but we really talk about the implications of, of what new technology can mean on the way that we are consuming products that are incredibly important to us. So without every time that we create a new way of doing something in agriculture, really in anything, there are always unintended consequences. And we need to push forward. We need to create a better means of living on this planet. But we also need to be cognizant of what the unintended side effects of these new technological innovations can be. And so this conversation was, was, it really taught me quite a bit. And I appreciate Nate's openness and candidness with all of the things that they're doing at Plenty to, to try to honestly build a more sustainable agricultural system on planet Earth. Okay, here we go. This is our conversation with Nate Story, the co-founder and CSO of Plenty. Welcome back to another episode of Who is Saving the Planet? And today we have with us Nate Story of Plenty. Nate, welcome in. Yeah, thanks for having me. So behind you, which our guests can't see, but I am looking at is this, it looks like a celestial meets terrestrial landscape of shafts of light going up and down with beautiful greenery interspersed. Um, almost like a like a piece of abstract art. And I presume what I'm looking at here is the inside of a plenty facility. That's right. Yeah, you're seeing the inside of uh, of one of our farms. 
So yeah. you guys are one of the biggest and fastest growing vertical farming companies um, that is, you know, relatively young, but really taking the market by storm. And I would love to just start at the beginning with like, can you give us a little bit of an education around what, what vertical farming is? What is the innovation here? Yeah, you bet. So vertical farming, um, you know, there's several different lens to, to, to kind of use to understand what vertical farming is or what, what it could be. But, you know, in its simplest form, it's a way of kind of manufacturing new land. So, you know, in a world that is constrained, that, that has a growing population, you know, we've covered most of the land mass of the globe now. And, um, you know, the amount of arable land that we have to grow food on is shrinking. So in essence, you know, as it, as it relates to our species, the world is shrinking, right? The world is mm -hmm. getting smaller, more constrained. And so vertical farming is a way to unconstrain uh, the world of food production. So what we're doing is we're basically manufacturing uh, new land in these giant sheets, vertical sheets. So we take the, the, the ground and we set it up on its end and we slap two together, right? So we're growing both sides of these giant vertical sheets. And, um, and that's how we're manufacturing new land. Uh, the, but I guess the cool thing is we can make it wherever we want, right? So yeah. we're, we're putting this land really close to the people that need the food. So is it like a system of, of hydroponics and light? I mean, essentially, is it a system of hydroponics that's vertically oriented with the kind of lighting that you would need in order for plants to photosynthesize and grow? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we're, we've, we've taken the, the work that the sun has historically done and we've used technology to kind of improve the spectrum. Um, <laughs> that sounds arrogant, you know, improving on the spectrum of the sun, <laughs> but it really is true, you know, um, so we've, we've, you know, improved the spectrum and then we give these plants the perfect conditions mm -hmm. over the course of their life to get the most out of them. Can you grow anything? Like, is there any limits? Can you grow, like, I would imagine a watermelon is pretty tricky to grow when it's 30 feet above the ground. <laughs> it's only tricky when they start falling. Uh, but yes, uh, I have grown watermelon before. And um, at about 30 pounds, they do start to drop. Look out below! And I'll tell you, you know, that is a safety hazard. Uh <laughs> but so then for, what, what are your biggest crops that you guys are growing right now that you, yeah, what, what is it? What are the predominance of, of what you guys are producing? Yeah. So today we're primarily focused on greens and herbs. Um, you know, they're a fast crop and, you know, honestly, what we've learned, it, you know, if I could go back to the beginning and start over again, it probably wouldn't be with greens and herbs, um, mm -hmm. for a couple of different reasons, but you know, they're, they're profitable. We're harvesting the primary growth, which is the most efficient growth of the plant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we started with greens and herbs because, uh, you know, we get to harvest the really efficient primary production of the plant. So you said something before that I wanted to, I guess, double click on. I kind of hate like tech speak like that these days, but it is what it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the things that you guys, you know, from an existential element are solving for is to like expand the capacity of the earths that we can create by applying technology to something as old as, you know, agriculture as actually growing the calories that we need to survive as a people. That's absolutely right. You know, it's, it's funny how we have to kind of explain it roundabout, right? We, we have mm -hmm. to talk about what we do in kind of roundabout ways because 
people have very different perceptions of value. And, um, you know, if you live in the, in the developed world, you know, we have the benefit of great purchasing power and there's always things on the shelves in the store. Um, you know, we, we have lived a pretty privileged life. Um, but you go to other places and you start to realize uh, we're, the, the world is under a strain, right? And agricultural systems are under strain. And, and the reality is, is exactly as you say, right? Like the, our consumption, our levels of consumption require more arable land mass than we have today. Mm-hmm. And I know that people will jump on me and they'll be like, oh, well, we, we grow grain, you know, in the breadbasket of the United States can feed every man, woman, and child in the world. And that's true. Um, mm-hmm. But those are grains, right? And there's a big difference between uh, the consumption of grains and the consumption of fresh fruits and vegetables. The other thing I want to ask you about, I, I grew up in California and I also, my history was in wine um, before this current incarnation of me and water is such a pervasive thing that or such a problem about the amount of water that we're going to need and how constrained a resource that is with this way of growing things. Does it reduce the amount of water that is needed to grow, you know, from like kilogram to kilogram wise, the same type of food? Yeah, it totally does. So, you know, if you think about the field, you know, the, the our globe as a whole is a real, it's actually our, even, even our planet isn't technically a closed system, right? Like most yeah. of, most of the energy that our, our world consumes comes from outside of our world. Maybe our, our solar system is maybe a better way to describe a, something that's closer to a c- closed system. But, um, you know, when it comes to the field, we've really got an open system, right? You're putting a lot of water, you're moving water from different drainages and different places, and you're putting it on the crop. And um, 99% of that water is transpired. So if you think about plants, plants are basically little water pumps, right? That's all they're doing. Like all of the metabolism is uh, facilitated by the movement of water and the nutrients that that water carries through the plant. And so, you know, without enough water, the plants die. It's not just that they need, like, not like they're an animal drinking water, right? They're literally driving this, this biochemical water wheel, if you will, uh, with water. And most of that water that they're just pumping, they're pumping out into the atmosphere. They're, they're transpiring that water. Mm-hmm. And um, in the field, around 99% of the water you put down is transpired, right? So the 99% of the water the plant takes up, that doesn't count all the stuff that's lost to runoff that, that just evaporates directly into the air. Um, you know, and that's a pretty massive amount of, of water waste. If you think about it, now it's necessary to keep the plants growing, but it's, it's still waste. And, um, in our systems, we have the ability to capture all that water vapor, right? So we have something that's closer to a closed system. Now I will say like, we're still in the early days of understanding our water system, this closed water system that we have. But, you know, the theoretical minimum is something like 1%, less than 1% of the water that the field uses. Hmm. Um, we're, not, we're not there yet, <laughs> right? We've got a ways to go to get there. But just from a first principle standpoint, there's no reason why in 10, in 15 years, we can't be operating at less than 1% of the water use of the field on mm-hmm. a per kilogram output basis. So, so yeah. we've got more arable land with technology, more a better efficiency in terms of water use. Now, the third thing is that um, I live in the Northeast and I can still buy, you know, a strawberry in February 
or like an avocado. And you got to know that that thing has traveled thousands and thousands of miles to make it to my grocery store. I would imagine with this, you are able to reduce the distance between the food that is being grown and the people that are actually consuming it by, um, by orders of magnitude. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're not just manufacturing land, right? It's, it's not like we're adding to the Central Valley of California. We're taking the Central Valley of California and we're plopping it at New York City, right? We're taking mm -hmm. the Central Valley of California and plopping it in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in uh, Saudi Arabia, wherever we end up going, right? And that's kind of the miracle, right? It, it, it's, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, a better use of resources. It's this hyper-efficient use of resources really, really close to where the consumers are. So the quality goes up. Can it be cheaper than two? So like, you know, a tomato grown in a field that's traveled over the world versus a tomato that's grown in a plenty facility. It, so when you get to that point of scale, it's going to be cost competitive. That's exactly right. And I mean, the thing to understand is traditional farming is not on a cost curve. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, the concept of a cost curve, it's, it's like the fundamental economic driver of massive and almost instantaneous, miraculous growth in the tech industry. But the, the amazing thing is like in, in traditional ag, it's been an incremental improvement world for a very long time. And we have these little step fold moments in time. Like if we go back to the 50s and the 60s, we saw the, the beginning of the Green Revolution. You know, we had Norman Borlaug shuttle breeding wheat down in Mexico and doing all this crazy stuff. And everyone's like, this guy's a lunatic. It's not going to work. And, you know, uh, two he decades later. Surprise, right? He like created uh, yeah, that Nobel wheat that was Peace more Prize. resistant because it was shorter and still fed people as much. So it didn't fall over as much. Is it? Am I somewhat right about that? You're absolutely right. Uh, Holy exactly moly, I don't even know where I pulled that out of that place. <laughs> well, you sound really smart. So <laughs> I'm only decent at a cocktail party. It actually asked me to do stuff. It goes downhill fast. So that's one of those step functions. I, what are the other ones? What are the other step functions that we've had in agriculture in the last, whatever it is, century? Yeah, I mean, one of the big step functions before that was, uh, you know, nitrogen, the ability to uh, generate artificial nitrogen. First, it was like guano, right? That uh, off the coast of Chile, there's a massive industry down there, and all they did was, you know, they they sailed these massive fleets. Fortunes were won and lost, right? Um, in mining basically nitrogen, and then Haber Bosch process came along and boom, reformed the economics of kind of leaping forward in terms of yield. So, you know, like we have these moments in time, Haber-Bosch process, the green revolution. Before that, we had like the, the, the um, you know, the advent of industrialized transportation, right? Like trains mm -hmm. could actually start moving things from one place to another. And there's kind of these moments in time, the invention of the plow, right? The invention of like these different implements and tools um, that allowed us to, 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 you know, not just improve by 1%, from year to year, but to improve the consistency in a multifold way or yield in a multifold way. And so you see plenty as, and this technology of vertical farming as, as another of these step function moments where we are, we are leaping past what it was in the last 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I view it as another moment. I, you know, at the risk of sounding kind of grandiose, I think it may be one of the greatest moments <laughs> in some ways, Listen, right? You're a founder of a successful, what was startup now billion dollar company. I think you've earned a little bit of grandiosity along that process. <laughs> well, thank you. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So here's kind of a, this is a little like an, of an existential question about this, but like, 
I wonder if anything is is lost in these moments. You think about pesticides was something that allowed us to grow things more efficiently than we ever could before. But we're now seeing that there are downstream effects of that, that at the time we didn't realize. But I wonder, is there anything intangible that perhaps is lost in that that we won't see now, but could in the future? Yeah, that's a, that's actually a really... Um... That's a really good observation, and that that has kind of always been true, right? Um, in the story house, I with my kids, I always teach them there's no free lunch. That the story motto is "You always pay," right? It's like you always pay. There's <laughs> you don't so get what, so yeah, something for nothing. What's the right? bill? What's the bill um, when it comes to? The, yeah, I mean historically, so I think I think in order to understand kind of the context of the cost of this leap forward, you have to kind of like rewind back through some of these historical jumps, right? So. Um, you know, an example would be um, with the advent of the tractor, for instance, you know, it meant a pretty life-changing thing for uh, farmers, right? They went from 60% of their land mass was dedicated to just keeping the animals alive, the oxen and the horses and the mules and the, the things that pulled plows, right? Tractor comes along and all of a sudden, boom, instead of now 60% of every farm being pasture, now the entire farm could be tilled up, right? So you, you see erosion, you have the dust bowl, you have, you know, like you, you have like the advent of uh, this ecological disaster, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so to kind of move into this next world, I, you know, I've asked my question, that same question, same question you asked, I've asked that a lot, right? What do we, we always pay, what do we pay with? And I think, um, I think, uh I think historically when we have paid, it's because we haven't, uh, we've underestimated our own success, the, the opportunity for success, right? Like we're trying to solve this immediate problem and we're not thinking about the long-term one. Mm-hmm. Now, the cool thing about what we're doing here is historically we're talking about like a single piece of technology, right? That, that comes into play, whether it is like modern genetic shuttle breeding, what in the Haber-Bosch process, you know, catalyst technology and like the industrial manufacturing dawn of like true industrial chemical manufacturing, right? You have like these things that kind of drive, um, drive this change. And when we look at what we have today, you know, we've kind of traded a lot over the last hundred years. And we're in a place where I would describe it as a bit of a deficit. You know, we have now irreparably changed the face of planet earth. Uh, with agriculture and in in some bad ways, right? It's become more extractive, not less extractive. And uh, people are uh, alive and there are more people than ever before, but they're not necessarily healthier for it, mm-hmm. um, you, you could argue. So when I look at what we're trying to do, I, I think, you know, we're trying to solve for human health. We're trying to solve for the land consumption of historical, like the historical approach to ag. Right, we're trying to solve for the resource construction uh, of the historical approach to ag. You know, we're managing the nutrition in the in the plant so we can deliver more nutrition. Um, and this is not all to say that it's all rosy and that the you know like <laughs> this is perfect and we've thought through everything. Like I don't think any human can think through everything, but I really genuinely do believe that what we're working on now is as close to a total solution. Um, to kind of the historical damages of some of these advancements that uh, that we're going to have in, in a while, and so um, does, does it, it mean? Oh, go ahead. 
Well, no, go ahead. You, yeah, please. I mean, no, I, I think, you know, the, 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 the final thought here is, does it mean that we're not trading anything? Um, no, I do think, you know, as we move food closer to people, um, you know, there, there will ultimately be trade-offs. Now, I don't think they're going to happen for 50 years, but I'm hoping that these are trade-offs. If, if I'm going to be like expose my somewhat radical environmentalist agenda here, <laughs> you know, uh, I do hope that we we're live all in about a, radical environmentalist agenda uh, here at Who's Saving the Planet, <laughs> by the way. I hope that we're in a world, you know, 70 years from now where kind of this, this confluence of technological improvements, right? We have the advent of cheap, sustainable energy. Right. Like this is something that we haven't historically had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're breaking away from fossil fuels. We're seeing solar, which is also on a cost, uh, cost curve, right? This techno- right. technological cost curve. We have, you know, uh, incredible fusion breakthroughs in the last five to 10 years. You know, again, a technology on what I believe is a cost curve. Uh, tech technology cost curve. We have the advent of wind. We have the advent of all of these new sources of energy that are that are more sustainable. Um, we have, you know, these environmental challenges in the field. Like you just look at all these this this confluence of all these factors, and uh, you look at what we're doing, and and it's kind of like, you know, are we trading? Um, People will say like, well, you're trading the romance of farming or the romance of the field. And I'm kind of like, I'm not sure that that should have been romantic to start with. But if you think, you know, Bob, the farmer still wakes up in the morning and walks out and stands akimbo, you know, next to his field, watching the sunrise, you're, you're delusional, right? Right. It's everything yeah, is a Monsanto and whatnot has taken that out of the picture. So, but That's it right. does kind of sound like writ large though, perhaps we won't ever know what shape that bill will take until we walk down the path. I think and that's so true. We just shouldn't drink our own Kool-Aid, you know, and we should try to be as honest as possible right. and as realistic as possible. And, you know, sometimes that's hard when you're excited about something and you've got all this, you know, cool technology coming to bear. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the end of the day, we're here to make the world better, not to just make the world different. We talked about this before, but my grandfather grows tomatoes in his backyard and he yeah. definitely goes outside and you know he's in Ohio, he's in literally Middletown, Ohio, and he's got his little patch of tomatoes. And it's about as much of like an idyllic bucolic setting as you can. And I wonder like just at a basic taste level, does the food taste the same when it's grown in this type of environment? Is there any... Is there any sort of, you know, would I know the difference if you were to blind taste test me on a tomato from Plenty or a tomato from a farm? Um, I think, uh, one, I think we would beat beat any tomato on the shelf today. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about your grandpa's tomatoes. It's awfully hard to beat, uh, uh, you know, a grandpa's tomato. But- yeah, but from a, from a quality standpoint, is there anything lost in this process or is there anything gained? Yeah, I mean, I think um, so. If you think about it, you know, the, the plants have uh, the plants have understood nutritional needs, and so mm-hmm. we deliver all of the nutrients that the plants use and need uh, in the perfect ratios. They have uh, understood light requirements, spectrum, intensity, duration. Uh, we deliver those conditions in the in the perfect amounts from a flavor standpoint. And then there are very clear environmental requirements, right? Humidity, temperature, um, you know, how those uh, humidity and temperature interact with the light, interact with the nutrition, interact with all these different elements of the farm. And so um, the beauty of what we do is we manage it all perfectly. So the same conditions uh, that result in that 
perfect tomato from, uh, you know, your, your grandfather's garden. Those are the conditions that we can match, right? Perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and at scale. And that's, that's somewhat unique, right? Mm-hmm. Think about the history of ag is the, his, the history of ag is really the history of humanity trying to control uh, nature, right? Yeah. And to the extent that we've just subjugated it at this point, it's, it's completely subjugated. And then you kind of fast forward to where we're at today. And what we are is just like the, the end point of that spectrum of development, right? Where we've said, you know what, the greenhouse is still not entirely controlled. It's a big room, like the uh, understanding the dynamics of, you know, thermal, you know, managing that giant room is actually pretty hard. Um, And you still don't control the energy inputs because the sun is bright, then it's not bright and there's clouds and there's, you know, all this other stuff going on. So, um, you know, basically all we've done is we've just kind of zipped out to the end of that control spectrum and said, hey, with complete control, with technology inputs to the farm, meaning we can build our own technology crest curve and drive that cost out. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, but, you know, we can ride this cost curve out to a world where we can do way more production, way less environmental impact, um, much higher product, much closer to the people that need it. So we're breaking this distribution problem, you know, where there are five regions of the world, basically, where you can grow high value fresh fruits and vegetables. And all of a sudden now any place you have power, water, and people, you can grow fresh fruits and vegetables. You know, we're freeing up now the resources to give things back. You know, my fantasy is to say, you know, 60, 70 years from now, we can do this so inexpensively that the family farm is now a a building, right? And instead of being, you know, 400, 500, 600, 10,000 acres, however many acres it is to like grow these crops, we're now doing this in the super condensed space and all that acreage goes back to nature. Right. The highest and best use of that land, right. Goes back that's, to nature. That's a nice vision that, that we would be able to take those manufactured places and return them back to a natural state where it was less of a human intervention and more, I want to switch gears a little bit here and, and talk about you and talk about the story of, of plenty. Um, you guys obviously have been incredible, incredible success, a half a billion dollars raised to, to make this vision come true or more. Um, was there a moment in this journey when you talk to entrepreneurs and it's like, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety. And then at some <laughs> point, perhaps, was there a moment where you're like, you know what? I think we're turning a corner and this thing is actually going to work. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> still, I mean, even now you're still sort of like scratching and fighting to say like, you know, push, push back those dark ideas about maybe this is going to work. Maybe as it isn't. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I think you have to have um, faith that it's going to work. It must work, right? Like the the world needs it to work. All of all of these things say it should work, right? Mm-hmm. Again, like that con- the confluence of all these tech- technology inputs, right? This has to work, right? Also, like we're driving off a cliff. It has to work for the sake of humanity, for the sake of the planet. It has to work. Right. Um, recognizing that it has to work recognizing that, you know, it's just like, you know, everything, the giant flashing arrow, right. Pointing to this exact point in history saying like humanity, you have to do this thing or you're goners. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that feels very obvious to me. I think it feels very obvious to a number of other people. I don't think it necessarily feels obvious to everyone. 
And I don't necessarily think it feels obvious to markets, right? And the reality is there are always going to be folks that I think are, are thinking like on the 20, 30, 50, 100 year timeline. Um, and markets don't typically think on those timelines. So, you know, I think historically for this business, the hard part has always been saying, you know, listen, this is a capital intensive business and uh, we have to go find um, conviction driven capital that understands the problem and is willing to go deep with us to understand our solution to the point that they will put put money into this. But okay. uh, it's getting people to think in those terms, right? Because they're they walk into a store, they're like, I, there's food on the shelf. This is this doesn't feel like a crisis to me, right? You know, and you're like, well, how did that food get there, right? And how much of the Amazon do we have left? And how much carbon have we dumped into the atmosphere because we till the land? And how much of that land now is under threat because of you know saline inclusion into aquifers because of pesticide, uh, you know, uh, and heavy metal contamination in China because of like you zoom in on any part of the world and you're like, wow, we have fundamental structural problems that can't just be solved by waiting it out. Yeah. That and like just building building a business is just hard work, and there's not a single day that it gets easier. Like it's just I, I keep waking up, and I'm just like, certainly this year is going to be the easy year. No, this year is just as hard, if not harder, than the last. I would. I wonder what if you could go back five six years towards the beginning of this journey. Is there any advice that you would give your younger self who is just starting out on it? Um. No, I would, I would have to lie through my teeth, right? Like, <laughs> it's going to be great, man. Just keep, keep it up, right? Um. <laughs> you know, I asked that question to like almost everyone. No one's come up with that answer before. I love that. There's so much willful delusion that you need to have if you're That's trying right. to build something that hasn't been built before. Yep. And you just got to like, just put your shoulder to the grindstone every day, not knowing whether it's going to work out. If you want to make money the easy way, get into like internet businesses, right? Like get into software, get into things that scale faster and easier from a product standpoint. Uh, if you want to make, uh, want, want to, want to do, you know, want to engage in really hard work, it's like build giant physical assets with a ton of design in them and the integration of science and engineering. Holy, like, dude, that is, that is not a problem that most people want to tackle. I'm passionate about this thing. Like I, I got into food because I, I want to feed people. Listen, yep. Nate, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about today. This has been a fascinating conversation and um, I can't wait to stay tuned to see as this momentum continues to build what you guys come up with next. Yeah, thanks. Well, thanks for having me on. It's great, great chatting. Yeah, it's a pleasure. All right, cheers. See ya.